So all that we've been doing this year, I think this is kind of the, uh, the capstone to that. And so we're going to, we've been hinting at it all year, of the importance of the resurrection. So I wanted to take some time today to kind of focus more intensely on this. The question that I'm asking today is, why should I be convinced that a man rose from the dead? And this is really, I think, the most important question that we can ask about our faith, because it really is uh, the centerpiece of demonstrating powerful evidence that Christianity is true. That it is not just one religion among many options of religions, but that it is, in fact, the one true religion. And it is the, the thing that sets Christianity apart from other religions of the world. Now, in our, in our culture, the predominant belief, obviously, is that when you die, you're going to go be fertilizer for flowers. Uh, this is the paradigm of what we call naturalism, that when you die, this, that's all that there is. There ain't no more. Now, many people don't use the term naturalism, but they, um, many people are just practical naturalists. This is sort of the default of, our, of many in our culture. Some in our culture would say, yeah, I believe in something after death, but I don't really know what that is. Some others would believe in reincarnation. But what we do know is that people don't rise from the dead the way that Jesus did. That is unique. So when, we're, when we talk about the resurrection, we are confronting a, a very core belief of our culture. So we have to understand that when it comes to worldview issues, remember we've been talking a lot this year about core beliefs and core worldview issues. This is a core belief of many in our culture is that dead men don't rise, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I always like to start here because Paul's um, writing is just so clear on, the, on this issue. And he says, now, brothers, starting in verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and by which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are also saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance that... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. After that, he appeared more than 500 to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. Now, when he says that he passed on what he received, uh, this is a very important phrase in this because what it's telling us is that these are technical terms in Judaism that he was passing on an oral tradition of what he had been taught. So the, the received teaching was the oral tradition. So what we know from 1 Corinthians is that even prior to writing this book, 
there was already an established oral tradition in place that was being passed around among the church. And 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier epistles, probably in the 50s. So it's within, you know, maybe 15 years or so of the resurrection itself. And so by that time, there's already an established tradition. And remember, the first Christians were Jews. So it makes sense that they were passing on this information in a way that that had been their common way of passing on things all along. And that was through an established oral tradition. And so that's when he means this, this word received, that he, he preached to you or he passed on to you that which was received. He's passing on a very particular tradition. Now this, now this litany here of, in verses 3 to about uh, 7 or 8 through 8, is also um, probably he's reciting an early creed here, an early statement of faith that predates the book of Corinthians, this letter to, to the Corinthians. And this is, uh, this is a non-controversial point. Even people like Bart Ehrman and other liberals will say that that is what is behind 1 Corinthians and this section of it, is that it's a rabbinic teaching, it's a rabbinic kind of style of passing on of an oral tradition, and that he is reciting kind of a statement of faith, of core beliefs, if you will, a creedal statement. And so this is, he repeats, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. Now, I want you to notice the words that it was of first importance This is a very important phrase because it says it was of what importance? First importance. This is very important because this is what I believe is giving us the core or what we've been talking about is our mega belief of our worldview. Our core guiding belief of what it means to be a Christian is that we are defined by the resurrection of Jesus. This is our core mega belief as Christians. And it is in this belief of, that is of first importance that Paul is calling our attention to, to understand that this is the core of our identity. It's not our testimony. Our testimony is about the resurrection, but it is the historical fact of the resurrection that forms the core of our faith. So it's very important. So the words first importance, that Christ died according, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day. Now these three components of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then as part of the resurrection, those appearances that he makes, all corroborate that these are, is the assertion of the New Testament is that it is history. These are historical events. These are historically based facts. This is the claim. Now, we could argue as to whether or not that claim is itself real or fake news, but it is, this is the claim, is that this is real historical facts. Now, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Now, notice here. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, those who have already died but we're Christians. They're also lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ and we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, this is a fascinating section of scripture, I think, because what it's making the case is that the, his, the intrinsic connection between history and theology, as I like to call it, and I've talked about this in class many times before, But just as a quick review, it says, um, and if Christ has not been raised, which is a historical claim, our preaching is useless and so is your faith, which is a theological claim. The idea that the Bible might contain useful moral ethics to tell us how to live, but that the history is in fact sort of more negotiable as to whether or not it's true. I find to be a very curious and alien claim to the claims of scripture itself. Because according to the paradigm that Paul is setting up here, is that if Christ has not been raised, which is a historical claim, then you are still in your sins, which is itself a theological claim. You cannot separate out, I don't think, the theology from the history. They're interconnected, they're interwoven, they're related. You can't undo it. It's like saying, how do I bake a cake? Well, I have eggs and I have flour. Maybe I have some chocolate if it's a good day. And, you know, I mix all these things up and I put it in the oven and out pops the cake. And then I say, well, how do I extract the eggs from this cake? I can't do that, can I? It has become part of the cake. Right? And this to me is the paradigm that scripture sets up about our faith is that the history and the theology are so commingled that you cannot separate them out. And and it's not just one verse. This is to me the thrust of Paul's entire argument in this passage. If he, um, let's read uh, about this some more. He says, Verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are pitied more than all men. In other words, we're a fool. If, if Christ has not been raised, we have hope in this life. We think, hey, look at me. I have this great hope of an afterlife. But if Christ has not been raised, that hope is no hope at all. Right? We're really foolish. And so when people say, well, I don't need evidence for my faith. Well, you might. (laughs) You might, because this is the very paradigm of Scripture itself. It is not a more holy position to take that I don't need evidence for my faith. Rather to say I need evidence to believe in something is actually a very scriptural position to take. So when you have an unbeliever in your oikos who is a, has a difficult time with believing. That's okay. 
it's, it's, a, it's a very foreign paradigm to say, well, you know, faith is believing in something when common sense tells us not to. That's a quote from Miracle on 34th Street about uh, the belief in Santa Claus. Our belief in God is not like believing in Santa Claus. Our belief is one is based on evidence. Okay, and that, that the creator of the universe himself intervened in his creation and came in the person of Jesus Christ, walked among us, died, was buried, resurrected, and appeared. Praise yes, praise the Lord. So, Christ is indeed, verse 20, he has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ is the first fruits. In other words, he's the firstborn, as it says in Colossians chapter 1. He's the first to be resurrected. And we too will also be resurrected. And this is how we have confidence that we will be resurrected. Now, I don't know about you, but I am all too human, and there are many days when there, I read something in the scriptures that I do not understand, and perhaps I am alone in this. Um, but there are many things that I do not understand. There are many things that I read about and I study in doctrine that I don't completely understand. But there's one thing that is very sure for me. This one thing is what keeps me grounded when I'm having a day of doubts and I'm just not sure of where I'm going is I come back to the resurrection because the resurrection is my core belief. It is the thing on which the rest of my faith stands. And I can say confidently that the resurrection seems to me to be the best explanation of the facts. And so this is what helps me on days when doubt seems to be crouching at my door. This is the thing that when people ask me, why are you a Christian? I say, that's easy. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why I'm a Christian. It's not because of my testimony, although my testimony might be interesting to some, but that's not why I'm a Christian. The reason I've stayed a Christian all these years through hardships that I have faced in my personal life is because I was absolutely persuaded as a young 22-year-old in seminary, when I studied the resurrection for the first time as a historical thing, that this was true. And this was the best explanation of the facts. And this is what got me through a few decades of mental illness and difficulty in my, in my walk with the Lord and in my personal life. Because on the days of my darkest doubt, I knew that the resurrection was true. And I hope it will be that rock for you that you will know this and, and have a way of, of sharing this with the people that you are influencing. So why this matters? Why should I believe in Jesus? If Jesus rose from the dead, then it proves Jesus's identity, his miss, mission, and his message. It proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. How did he do all of those miracles? What power was it that caused him to be able to do all of those miracles? 
He proves that in the resurrection. And he proves that the God of the Old Testament is in him and ha- who had the power to raise people from the dead under the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. He proves that that same God is with him and that, that the same God of the Old Testament is, is empowering his miracles and that that is the continuation of the, I would say, the, the completion of Judaism. And when we talk about resurrection, we're not talking about a resuscitation or a near-death experience. Some people have um, resuscitations from the dead. Some people die for a few minutes, and then they're brought back to life. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a near-death experience where he was just mostly dead. You know, uh, That's not what this is. Partially dead, mostly dead. We're not talking about reincarnation, which is another competing view in our culture. We are talking about a man who was utterly and completely dead, and the life was drained out of him, and he was buried for three days and then came back to life. I thought this was a great quote by a a theologian that I've never heard of, that the meaning of the resurrection is a theological matter. That's the point that I'm trying to make. But the fact of the resurrection is a historical matter. So some weeks ago, uh, and I'm not going to take time to review this too much, but we looked at a whole bunch of extra biblical sources of what they have to say about Jesus and and the early followers of Christianity. And I referred you to this book. And these are just a few of the sources that we looked at some weeks ago. And this is a summary of some of those key points, that there were Christians and uh, the followers of Crestus. They originated in Judea. Crestus was executed during the reign of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate. His followers believed he came back to life. They reported that they saw his resurrected body. Is this starting to sound like 1 Corinthians 15? Yeah. Uh, Disciples continued to follow him even after his death. Followers worshipped him as a god. Christians ascribed some kind, uh, ascribed to having some kind of superstitious, I will call that miraculous beliefs. Uh, Christians were expelled from Rome during the reign of Claudius, uh, which means that Christians had spread all the way to Rome within two decades of Christ's birth. So the movement was still going as a movement. Even two decades later, Jesus was considered to be wise and virtuous, Christians were blamed for the burning of Rome. He, they were persecuted by uh, Nero. And literally, they were lit on fire. They were killed by wild animals. And Jesus was condemned for sorcery, a word for magic. Maybe we might call them miracles and blasphemy. Okay, so this is just a summary of some of the key points that we can get about Jesus outside of the Bible. But there's many overlaps, you can see here, to Scripture itself and some of the key points that we're talking about. And I said some weeks ago that if we're going to make the case for Jesus, uh, I recommended using what I called a minimal facts approach, where there were certain minimal key facts that we could know outside of the Bible um, about Jesus his, and his life, death, and resurrection. Well... This is even more minimal facts. I think the minimal facts I gave you was maybe 11 or 12. Here I've boiled it down to four facts. 
that even unbelievers, even liberal scholars will, will accept. And the question is, is how do we account for these minimal facts about the life of Jesus? A man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and buried. The tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. The disciples said they believed they saw Jesus risen from the dead and the disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection experiences with Jesus. This is the minimal facts approach. And I think the question is, is what is the explanation that, that can account most robustly for these facts? Because these are the facts that are fairly undisputed, even among liberal scholars. And the question of what happened to Jesus and what happened to his followers, I think that whatever explanation you put forward, it, it's got to be able to account for these minimal facts. And we talked about this. Uh, remember, we watched some clips from my friend Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case detective. We're going to watch another clip with him today. And he engages in what's called abductive reasoning. And this is the kind, if you've ever heard, uh, Jim used to like to quote the Occam's razor a lot in class. Of, you know, uh, this is the kind of reasoning that detectives engage in. He, Jim always used to like to quote Sherlock Holmes. You know, and that's an example of abductive reasoning, seeking to find the simplest and most likely explanation, uh, inference to the best explanation of the facts. That's abductive reasoning is what is the story that accounts for the most facts? Okay, so we're going to watch this clip by my friend Jay Warner Wallace and um, for the bulk of what we've got left here, because I just think he does a masterful job of it using his strategies as a former LAPD cold case detective. And a cold case is a case that's, that's kind of run out of leads. And it's, it's, uh, they don't, they're trying to solve it. This was his specialty. And he's kind of woven that into um, the world of defending the faith and using those same types of techniques. Okay? So let's take a look at how we might do this. And I think that absolutely Chris was right. Paul does talk about this as a very important, the singular most important piece of evidence in the Christian worldview is the resurrection. Paul says, if we aren't telling you the truth about this, we have been lying to you. And worse than that, you bought the lie. You have put your trust in another life, your trust in the resurrection of yourself. In a false story, you'd be pitied if that's the case, because none of this is true. The resurrection is the key piece of evidence. So we're going to look at it and treat it that way. There's a biblical scholar who's become a friend of mine. He's really a great guy. His name is Gary Habermas. And Gary's written a book along with Mike Lycona called the, Re- uh, the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. I like this book, and I'll tell you why. Because he reminds me of me. He's examining the case for the resurrection in the way that I did. Here's what he did. Gary went out and he polled and surveyed every biblical scholar who's ever written, 3,400, I think, Biblical scholars who have written about Jesus, all the way from the most conservative Bible-believing scholars, all the way down to the most liberal Bible-rejecting scholars, like a Bart Ehrman. And he made a short list of all the minimal facts about the resurrection that everyone agrees to, even if you don't believe in Jesus is God, you believe in these minimal facts about Jesus. The very bare minimum facts. Now, I can tell you as an atheist, he lists like 13 
I rejected all of them except for three or four. As an atheist, I might have given you these three or four bare minimum facts about Jesus. So I would have given you that he lived and that he died on a cross and was buried, but so what? That does not mean he rose from the grave. I also would have given you that the tomb was empty. And here's why I say that, because if you want to go game over on this thing right away, get the body out, drag it around town, or get the original claimers to recant. That would be game over. And none of that didn't happen. So we have something we have to explain. And I, would, I probably wouldn't have said it quite this way. I would have said that the disciples said they saw a risen Christ. Whether they actually believed it or not, I don't know. But yeah, I agree, they did say something about Jesus. And what they said seemed to really change the kingdom, okay? It changed the Roman Empire. And they seemed to be on fire. I might have given you this fourth one, but for sure I would have, I would have said, okay, these three I'm in on. But this does not mean he really rose from the dead. None of this guarantees a resurrection. These are minimal facts that as an atheist I could accept. They mean nothing in terms of proving a case for the resurrection. Because I would have said there are ways to explain those minimal facts that are not the Christian explanation. In fact, I'll give you seven explanations on the wall here, only one of which is the Christian explanation. The bottom one will be the Christian explanation, but I think any of these might also make the case. The only question is, which of these makes the most sense? Which makes the most sense of these minimal facts? Maybe Jesus didn't really even die, and the disciples were wrong about this. Uh, a lot of Muslims believe this to be the case. There are a lot of atheists that say, hey, you know what? Your own scripture seems to speak against your belief that Jesus died. Think about it. Not many people in the first century died as, as, as a result of crucifixion in the short period of time that Jesus allegedly died. Took a little longer to die on a cross than that. And you know that's true because your Bible confirms it. Jesus is crucified alongside two thieves, right? But when the Roman guards come along to see if everyone's dead that night, when they get to Jesus and the two thieves, the two thieves are still alive. So why do you think Jesus is dead? They're still alive. Maybe they're all still alive. He suffered. He passed out. He was resuscitated, not resurrected. So maybe they were just wrong about his death. Well, I want to show you some hidden science in the Bible. I don't think this is the case. I think we can kind of make a case for the true death of Jesus by looking at some hidden science, okay? I'm going to give it to you from a cop perspective. Look at this piece of, of Scripture. I think this has always been an interesting piece of Scripture. Luke says that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And then now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. How many of you have ever seen that? I'm sweating so hard, I'm now bleeding. I mean, come on. If you're going to write a story about Jesus you want me to believe, why would you stick that in there? Hmm, but we know now what this is. This is, not, this is actually a piece of hidden science that's in the Bible. Because this condition has now been documented, but it's very rare. What's it called? It's called this. Psychogenic hematotrosis. And where do we see it? If you go on the CDC, if you look at where you see this condition, Wikipedia, you're going to find that it's just, we see it most often in people who are sentenced on death row. The vast, 70% of all studies of this condition are seen in death row inmates. So maybe Luke, he's a doctor, he's going, hey, 
dude, I'm going to write about hematidrosis. Because about 2,000 years from now, people are going to see that thing and go, this is legit. Because, <laughs> man, <laughs> they ain't going to get it for 2,000 years. But trust me, when they finally get it, they're going to go, wow. I don't think so. It could just be that it was seen, it was observed, and now it's recorded for us because it actually happened. There's another piece of hidden science, but I want to walk you toward the second piece in a few steps because Jesus had an unusual path to the cross. His personal narrative getting to the cross is different than others who were condemned to the cross. For example, you know he's being accused of claiming to be the Messiah, not only that, of claiming as the Messiah to have some authority even over Caesar. Oh, don't say that. He's brought in front of the, the, the Jewish council. Here's what happens. He's being questioned. And he says to them, kind of getting himself ready for a beating here, I think. Why do you question me? He questioned those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said that, one of the officers smacked him in the head. You don't talk to the high priest that way. And the beating begins right here. His path to the cross is full of torment that others don't, don't get because he made claims that others didn't make. What happens next? Well, it gets worse. They blindfold him. They start beating him with his fist. They slap him in the face. The next thing that happens, according to Scripture, is that they scourged him. Oh, that sounds like, oh, they scourged him. They scourged him. Do you know that entailed? It entailed taking a whip called a flagrum that had pieces of rock or, or bone at the end, like a cat of nine tails, and beating this guy to within an inch of his life. Because those parts were bad enough. This part's bad enough. This part's killer. They opened him up. It doesn't stop there. They get him back down in front of the, you know, it seems that Pilate doesn't even want to do this. He's kind of like saying to the people who want him executed, dude, I don't see anything wrong with this guy, okay? How about this? I don't think we can execute him. How about if I beat him to within an inch of his life? Go ahead and beat him. They beat him up, bring him back in front. Good enough? We done now? Are we done now? Okay, look at him now. He's a mess. Are we done? No. Execute him. Execute him. That's not enough. They want more. He's enduring a lot more than most endured getting to the cross. Now, basically, he's got a crown of thorns stuck on his head. They give him a reed like a staff. They start beating him with the reed. Then, by the time he actually gets to the point where he's carrying his cross, unlike others, he can't The Son of God cannot carry his cross. What's that about? He's already starting to show the signs, the hidden signs. We know what happens when people take a beating like this. They start to go into some form of shock, circulatory shock. He can't even carry his own cross. Then they actually execute him. And even in the most traditional versions of this, you don't, it doesn't look that bad. Now, I suspect that most of us are now familiar with what? The Passion of the Christ. Have you seen that movie? Was that a bit disturbing? Because finally you got past the Renaissance paintings. And you got to see what Jesus probably looked like. And it's not pretty. But it's important for us to understand this so now when we get to the second piece of hidden science, you'll recognize it. And it's here in the Gospel of John, who's a fisherman, not a, not a doctor. He says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. Why? Because it's getting close to sundown. We've got to get these bodies off the cross. You've got to be dead before I can take you off the cross. If you're on the cross and you're not dead, the way to get you dead is to break your legs so you can't push up anymore and take a breath. You'll suffocate on the cross with your legs broken. So the idea here is to go through and break the legs of all the people on the cross so to make sure they're dead. But when they get to Jesus, it says they didn't break his legs. They came and found that he was already dead. 
They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Really? If I'm writing this thing, this is a fictional account, I think I might imagine to put the blood in. But would you have put water in that also? Because certainly it couldn't be real water came out of his body. It makes no sense. Why would water come out of his body? Hidden science. If you've ever seen, been to a car accident where somebody has suffered blunt force trauma before they die, or a beating blunt force trauma before they die, they are going to go into circulatory shock. At the point of heart failure, you have something called effusion that occurs. Two forms of effusion. One is circulatory shock caused either pericardial effusion, which is where water collects in the sac around your heart. But most doctors who have studied this will tell you that this sac is very close to the heart. So if you were to poke it with a blade and come back out again, the water and blood would be so close to each other that you wouldn't even see a separation at all. But if you suffer from pleural effusion in your lungs, that would be different. Because now water is going to collect in the, in the lung. And if you're in a hanging position, it's going to collect in like a slower sac. If you stab that part of the chest cavity and pull out the, the blade, you're going to see a separation of water and, blo and blood. Or he's just describing what he saw. Nobody gets it because nobody understands plural effusion until we get it. Now we've got a piece of hidden science in the scripture. That makes sense to me. Also, I want you to read this passage from the Gospels. Look how fast I read this, okay? They take down his body from the cross. Few of us have ever had prolonged contact with dead bodies. When's the last time you moved a dead body around? When's the last time you really looked at a dead body other than in a box? We don't have that experience in the 21st century because we have services in place that handle that for us. But that wasn't the case in the first century. You buried your own. So everyone had contact with the dead and they were very familiar with what the dead looked like. Now look at this passage. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Four things. Do you think it happened as fast as I just said it? I can say it in four seconds, but it didn't happen in four seconds. That took time to get the cross up, to get the nails out of his hands and feet, to get him wrapped. And there are three inconvenient truths about dead bodies that, trust me, if you pull one off a cross, you're going to see one of these three. I'll introduce them to you by way of the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office. There it is. Nice old building. But in the basement where we do autopsies, it's a kind of a house of horrors. If you're involved in a murder, if you get killed, I'm going to have to go, if I'm working the case, I'm going to have to go to the autopsy. But there are three things, that three inconvenient truths that happen at death. It's called the mortis triad. And I can't imagine you could ever try to get Jesus' body off that cross without noticing these things. The first thing you see is that people, when they die and their heart stops pumping, and that heart is pumping warm blood, the first thing they do is they cool down and they get cold to the touch. If you think that dead bodies look like unconscious bodies in the movies, when they're dead, there's something different about a dead body. It's not like a sleeping body. It's very different. You, as soon as you walk in, you know that guy's not sleeping. That guy's dead. <laughs> and, and so you see this, the cooling is the first thing, though, to the touch, because now you don't have that hot gyroscope pumping blood through your body. Because that heart is not pumping body, uh, blood, that's called algor mortis, by the way. You also have the body start to get stiff. That's called rigor mortis. So it's part of this mortis triad. They get stiff. You hang on that cross. If I don't get you down, you're going to come off the cross and your arms are going to come down very slowly because you're in that stiff position. That's where you started. You've got to push those arms down. 
The last thing you do is you have bruising because the blood is not continuing to pump through your body. So gravity is gonna pull this, this, the, the, unpumping, the unmoving blood, uncirculating blood, it's gonna pull it to the lowest extremity. If you die on your back and I get there, I roll you over, your back's gonna be black and purple. Your front will be pretty white because all the blood is now, gravity's taking it to the lowest point. And that is called liver mortis, mortis triad. The reason why we don't think about this is because we don't have daily contact with dead bodies as part of our culture, but the first century did. To say that you think they could get this body and they were fooled, ah, oh, he was just passed out. Really? Okay, it's possible. It's just not reasonable. By the way, that's the whole determining factor here, separating what's possible from what's reasonable. Anything's possible. So isn't it possible he didn't die? Absolutely. It's just not reasonable. And I don't care what's possible. I only care about what's reasonable. Well, maybe it's a different issue. Maybe they're just lying about this. They're conspiring. Well, that comes down to why they would lie. Well, we've already talked about that. But this is a, a, often argued as one of, this whole thing is an elaborate lie. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. That means we're talking about conspiracy theory. I can help you with conspiracy theories. I have to work these all the time. Anytime two or more people commit a, a murder, they're involved in a conspiracy. It's an additional charge in California. Now, I can tell you that conspiracies require five things to work. I know because I work these. If you have these five things, you can actually pull off a conspiracy. Without these five things, it's very difficult. And for those of you who are in this room right now who love conspiracy theories, stop it. Okay, it's stupid. If you want to be seen as a rational thinking person and you think that some large segment of the U.S. government is involved in a 50-year-old conspiracy, Please, these five things are necessary for a conspiracy. The first thing you need is the lowest possible number of conspirators. It's much easier for two people to lie than it is for 25 people to lie and hold the lie. You also need the shortest possible time span in which to hold the conspiracy. It's easier to hold a conspiracy for 10 minutes than it is for 10 years, right? Does that make sense? You need excellent communication between co-conspirators. You need to make sure that I know if I stop this guy and he gets asked, does he have our story together? What'd you tell him? I need to repeat to my guy what you told your guy to hold the conspiracy. You can't pre-plan everything in advance. You just can't. If I'm gonna interview people, I always get into the weeds, the minutia of their story because I know they planned this much, but I wanna know what's going on down here because I know they didn't pre-plan this. This is where they're gonna have problems matching their story. Make sense? The next thing you need, if you can get it, is if you've got a strong family relationship between co-conspirators, it's hard to break those because, you know, a mom is not even going to waive her rights to speak to you about her son. That's your baby. By the way, the son will rat off the mom, but the mom won't rat off the son. And the last thing you really need, if you think about it, and this makes sense, don't you think, is you need some pressure. If you don't apply pressure to people who have done a conspiracy, why would they give it up? I mean, you've got to apply some kind of pressure. Make sense? So once you know the five things that are required for a conspiracy, now you know how to break conspiracies. And this is what we do when we work conspiracy theories. Make sense? Okay, now I want you to turn a corner. Instead of these five guys or these four guys I have on the wall, I want you to imagine now the conspiracy that the 12 would have to pull off in order to get the Christian conspiracy to work. Given the five things that are required, let's play a game of Clue. Put the Clue board up. And instead of having your usual Clue board, we'll go ahead and use the area around where Jesus had his ministry. There it is. Put the game pieces on, the Beely Disciples. Put a couple cards down. The first thing we gotta ask ourselves is, okay, how long do these guys have to hold this conspiracy? 
Uh, how about 60 years? Really? <laughs> really? Okay, stop. All you, you know, uh, JFK conspirators, all that stuff, just stop. I mean, do you think it wouldn't be a payday for somebody by now to tell the truth about some of these things? A cultural payday, a book deal, a movie, protection, all the stuff you want. You'd be a cultural hero. No, that's not, that's not good. How about this one? Do they have a way to communicate with each other? Well, they're not in this holy huddle. They're all over the, the, the map. So do you really think that Thomas knows in, North, in uh, India what Matthew is talking about in North Africa? You don't think this guy who's interrogating Thomas and beating the dog's not out of him is gonna say to him, dude, your partner's already gave this up. Tell me the truth. What would you want to die alone for this lie? Everyone's getting that routine done to them. They're getting beat to death. As a matter of fact, the kind of pressure that's being applied, let's take a look at that. That's a whole other thing. I love Clue. Don't you love Clue? They're getting Jack Bauer pressure, okay? <laughs> And then they're just getting beat to death. Terrible pressure, no communication, separated by thousands of miles for 60 years. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's possible. I don't think it's a reasonable concern. I, don't, I really don't think this is a reasonable... Is there, now, there were some brother relationships. But how is Matthew related to any of these guys? He's not. Why does he care what's happening to this guy? Forget it. Who in their right mind is willing to die for nothing they know is a lie when their partners are being told they're gonna get off for it. Okay, it's possible because anything's possible, but I just think it's ridiculous. It's not reasonable. That's not a reasonable scenario. And of course, we already talked about motive, right? How motive is by those three things we talked about. And these folks never gave up their testimony. They didn't get rich off of it. They didn't get a lot of girlfriends off of it. And they didn't get really, they couldn't even control the way they died. I think it's, now also, if you're gonna tell this story and you're gonna lie about it, do you really think you're gonna make the first observers of the risen Jesus women? It's Mary who sees Jesus first. You think you're gonna believe a woman in the first century on this very, if you're making fiction out of this, the first person who should see Jesus should be either Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. Two people who had juice in the culture who people might actually believe. Instead, you're gonna say that women saw it? That's just a not, not a good way to go. Now, by the way, women could testify in trials. Don't, this idea that women had no, no, they did have, they would testify in hearings, but they, it, honestly, they were not considered as reliable as men. But that's who actually saw him. So you just write it out the way it actually occurred. I think this idea that they're lying is certainly possible. It's just not reasonable. You're gonna get tired of hearing that. Anyways, I, th I thought it was an interesting clip because he incorporated a lot of different components to it with the hidden science and the conspiracy theory and, and all of that. So I wanted to kind of end today by looking at John chapter 20. So if you want to turn there, John chapter 20, and I want to start uh, in verse 18. And this is really the, the resurrection, uh, the story, one of the accounts of the resurrection. And uh, this is at the tail end of the appearance to Mary uh, Magdalene, who is probably my favorite female character in the Bible. Um, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples, verse 18, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So she's 
really, I think, uh, an evangelist, an early evangelist, if I have seen the Lord. And um, I think that um, she is a very compelling character. I would love to do a teaching on her sometime. There's many interesting aspects of her story. Anyways, uh, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, so now we're talking about Sunday, but Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed. When they saw the Lord again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the father has sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed onto them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him what? We have seen the Lord. So where have we heard this before? Mary. Magdalene says, we have seen the Lord. But the disciples, the 11, or the 10 in this case, they, uh, they had not yet experienced Jesus for themselves. And notice how Jesus just meets them in that. And then notice how he shows them in verse 20, his hands and his side. He gives them evidence of his, that, you know, he really was dead and I'm really here. He lets them examine that. So now Thomas kind of gets his turn. The other disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord. And he says to them, unless what? I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his, the nails were and put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. Now. Poor Thomas. I'm going to try to rescue Thomas from history. Because Thomas, what is his nickname? The Doubting Thomas is a very unfortunate nickname. Uh, I, I like to think of Thomas as the patron saint of the empiricist. He is the patron saint of scientists. He is the man who needs evidence. But I want you to notice that the type of evidence he's, he's asking for is the very type of evidence that Jesus gave the other disciples, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So it's not weird or odd or inappropriate that he asks for this. Only when we look at the account of Thomas in isolation and separated from the rest of chapter 20 does he become doubting Thomas, okay? What John is doing here is he's cycling that Mary says, I have seen the Lord after having an appearance from Jesus. And she says, I've seen the Lord. And she reports it to the disciples. And then they have, they have confirmation. And then they report to Thomas, I have seen the Lord. See, he, the, the author is just recycling these, these, the organizational structure here. And he says, uh, then it says in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the same house again. And Thomas was with them this time. And again, the doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Well, where have we heard that before? Back with the disciples, right? The author is just repeating the same, the same structure. 
And then he said to Thomas, something very similar than what he did with the other disciples, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Well, this is the very type of evidence that he'd given to all of the other disciples. So now he's extending that same grace toward Thomas. Notice that he doesn't chastise Thomas and say, Thomas, really? Why do you need so much evidence? You know, why do you need this? This is inappropriate. You should just believe already. He doesn't tell him that. He meets him in his need. He gives him what his need is for the evidence. And then he calls him to believe. Well, this is the very thing he does with all of us all the time. He, he meets us in our need, and then he calls us to believe in him. And this is, Thomas says to him, how, what is Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. This is one of the strongest statements in scripture, I think, for the deity of Christ. I mean, Thomas is a good Jewish boy. He's not going to bow down and start worshiping another human being unless he's totally and utterly convinced that Jesus is God. I mean, imagine the impact. This is why the, the Jews went into captivity as they were worshiping false gods. And the one th mistake they were never going to make again was ever worshiping the wrong God. And Thomas would have been programmed since childhood to worship the one true God. And here he says, my Lord and my God. I think this is a very strong indication of the, the conviction that he had of Jesus's power over death. And only the God of the Old Testament has power over death. So this must be that same God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This verse is so twisted in how it's preached so many times. So let me try to undo this pretzel. He's saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. In other words, I've given you the empirical evidence. I've given you physical evidence that you can see, that you can touch with your five senses. But he's not saying, blessed are those who have no evidence and yet believe in me, which is how it's frequently preached. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can't get in a time machine and go back to touching the side of Jesus, can I? I can't do that. I can't have that level of empirical interaction with Jesus. But that's what this does, right? This is the written account of those empirical experiences. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you might, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have, what? Life in his name. Because see, empirical evidence still speaks to us today. But that's why it's important for us to have grounding in the reliability of the scriptures. Saying that the, that the Bible is a historically based book is not just some academic thing way off in la-la land. It is the very foundation of our faith that this is a historical 
record because this is what brings us life. And this is, we have not seen these things, but we are trusting in this account that this is real and an accurate reflection and depiction of events that actually occurred. This is a very important part of our faith. So, so try to be a little, um, a, a little bit nicer to Thomas. And you can, you can always, I find this very effective when I'm talking to an unbeliever and they say, you know, I just can't believe in a God I can't see. And I say, you know what? That's okay. Because there was a man in scripture who said the same thing. He couldn't believe in something he couldn't see. And God met him in that. And God can meet that person in that. So try not to shame that person into, when they tell you that. I can't believe in a God I can't see. Try to say, you know what? That's great because God does not expect you to believe in him. This is why he provided the Bible. Because this is the historical account of the time when the creator of the universe came down and showed himself. And he was seen. And people interacted with him. And they talked to him. And they ate with him. And he died and they appeared. So if you can't believe in a God you can't see, awesome. Let me tell you about the God who was seen. Let me tell you about that. Because, so try not to shame your friends who need evidence. Try to meet them in that evidence the same way that Jesus met Thomas. And just say, that's okay. And this is why, personally, I've committed most of my adult life to working in the realm of apologetics. Because, to me, those evidences offer a compelling story for the unbeliever to see evidences from the physical world that they can see and they can begin to wrestle with that the Christian faith is a faith that is rooted and grounded in the real world. It is a very physical religion. It is a very empirical religion. Even the body and the blood of Jesus that we, that we take in communion is, it is a very five-sense-oriented experience. Christianity is a very earth-based religion as we bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It is not a religion that throws away this life. It's a religion that looks forward to heaven and to being the first fruits, the first fruits that are secured in Jesus. But it's not a, world, a religion that throws away this world. It's rather a religion that looks to redeem this life. I just want to encourage you today that when you're talking to people in your oikos who are more analytical, because I know that many of you have those people in your oikos, to... to, to Meet them in their questions just the way that Jesus did with Thomas. Not with shame or ridicule, but that Jesus is, the, is a God who came down and broke into our existence. And he did show himself. And this is why questions about the reliability of scripture matter. This is why we spent almost two months on that question of where did we get the Bible? Because it is important for unbelievers to understand that pathway and how that came to be. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for sending your son. And we thank you for showing us your love through him. Especially in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. We thank you, Father, that, that 
when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you saw us, you redeemed us, you took steps to come close to us. And Father, we want to take steps to be close to you, to be a good friend to you, to walk in obedience because you have redeemed us. And we thank you. Lord, we ask for insight into how to bring these truths into conversations with people that we love so that they can also come near to you, that they can also be saved, and they can also know the power of the resurrection that lives in each and every one of us. Lord, today we ask that the kingdom of God that is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that brought your son back to life, will be made manifest through us this week. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.